Welcome to Close the Door and Come Here, a Game of Thrones and a Song of Ice and Fire podcast with heavy leanings towards our two favourite characters, Jamie and Brienne. Well, there was a bear bear, all black and brown and covered in hair. I am YD, Yellow Delaney on Tumblr, and tonight I am joined with two of our regular crew, Chicky. Hey, this is Chicky. I am Chickren on Tumblr. And Comma. Hi, this is Comma. I am Grammar Saves Lives on Tumblr. And we also have two very lovely guests along for the ride, Fleet. Hi, this is Fleet, and I'm Fleeting Musings on Tumblr. And Jinmo. Hi, this is Jinmo, and I'm Jinmo on Tumblr. Excellent. (laughs) Thank you for joining us, guys. Um, Now, you may remember that prior to the commencement of Season 5, we had just finished reviewing Game of Thrones Seasons 1 and 2, so this episode marks the beginning of our Season 3 coverage. Uh, In the coming weeks, we'll also be recording several special episodes, uh, as well as kind of keeping you guys in the loop about any filming and casting spoilers for the upcoming season, so Season 6. Um... We actually recently posted a schedule of our upcoming episodes on the podcast Tumblr, so you uh, can check that out if you're so inclined. Uh, All right, so before we get started, I better give the standard warnings. First up, we are not a spoiler-free podcast. We spoil the books, we spoil the show, we spoil all the things that can be spoiled. Uh, And as usual, since this is Game of Thrones, there is pretty much always a possibility of rape discussion, so if that is a trigger for you, you may wish to check out now. Get out now. Get out now. Okay, let's get started. So, as I said, tonight we are delving into Season 3, so we're beginning with the first episode, which is Vela Dohaitis. Uh, the episode begins nice with... Nice accent, YD. Oh, thanks. That's great Valyrian you're throwing out there. <laughs> I learnt from Danny. <laughs> Uh, So the episode begins with a cold open, uh, and it's Sam, and he's kind of running for his life after having encountered that terrifying group of White Walkers and Whites at the end of Season 2. As he runs, he stumbles upon one of his fallen brothers, who's sitting there in the snow with his head in his hands, like his head has actually been torn off his body and placed in his hands. There's blood everywhere, it's pretty creepy. Uh, And then a white appears and attacks Sam, but he is thankfully saved by the very timely appearance of Ghost, uh, as well as Lord Commander Mormont, and they're accompanied by the remainder of the Night's Watch ranging party. The Lord Commander berates Sam for not sending off the ravens to warn about the White Walkers. Uh, He basically says to him, Sam, you had one job, damn it. Uh, And then the group uh, heads back to the wall. Lord Commander says, you know, they need to get word out about the impending apocalypse. I forgot this. I forgot that they had Ghost, like, play um, Sam's bodyguard even back at this point. I had completely forgotten about this. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I I was actually trying to remember when I was watching whether or not he was... I I can't actually remember how this went down in the books. I seem to recall that Sam actually did get some ravens off for a start, but... Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, didn't he? What, what that, this is this is based on the prologue for Storm of Swords, right? Which is is uh, oh is shit, it like Chet Chet and someone Chet, yeah. yeah, or no Chet Chet's the prologue for oh no, that's uh, a previous mm. no, uh, or no, no, no. Chet's... He's a, a Chet is uh, 
Chad is the Storm of Swords. The Storm of Swords, okay. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so whoever did, yeah, I think Sam actually does get the ravens off. Yeah, although it's it's an interesting sequence. I, I feel like he got some off, and the initial ones were talking about, you know, it's yeah. all going well at the fist, everything's okay. And I'm, I think, I'm not sure that he actually gets any off that warn of the White Walkers and the Whites. I think he ends up sending a bunch of ravens, but they don't have any messages attached. I could be completely... I'm obsessed with this raven thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I remember there was some discussion at the time about how the show was making Sam look really inept, and you know, and I'm thinking, well, he kind of is a little bit inept. I mean, I don't know. I didn't have a huge issue with his portrayal. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, like they they show him surviving this, which you know makes him look not totally inept. Actually, right. I. Th- and he does go on it's to funny, kill a white walker. I remember, I remember hearing an interview with John Bradley, who plays Sam, talking about this scene where he has to run. And like, <laughs> he asked them, I forget what the thing was, but he like asked them how long he was supposed to have been running. And it was like hours or something. And he had actually been running for like a couple minutes and he was already exhausted because it's like <laughs> in the snow and he's like wearing all this fur. Yeah. But it was, fun- it was funny watching. Oh, this is the one where they were like chasing him on the... Was this the the scene where oh, they were chasing yeah. him on that like cart? Oh, that's yeah, they, right. TVs or something chasing him, right? Yeah, yeah, and he was afraid of falling because if he did, then he would get like run, run over. over. <laughs> oh god, that's, <laughs> that's perfect. So sad. It's like the fear is real. The fear is real. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, let's move along to the next scene, which is John. So we're still north of the wall, um, and Igret's with him. She's leading him through Mance Raider's wildling camp. And she's sort of defending him from the other wildlings who aren't particularly happy that he's there. But she's also taunting him at the same time, which I think is a pretty Excuse good... Excuse me, sort of. It's, sort a, of it's a pretty good summation of their relationship, generally. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually this cute little moment when a giant passes them by and John sort of stares at him in wonder. I was a bit sad it wasn't 1-1, one, one, but I still thought it was cool. Oh. And it, you know what was interesting is, remember in Season 5 where 1-1 one, one is you know greatly offended by the fact that he's being stared at? Apparently that's not just him, it's all giants. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like that it. Was right. <laughs> so anyway, um, Egret drops John off at Mance's tent, uh, and inside, John mistakes Tormund for Mance and kneels before him, calling him Your Grace, which Tormund obviously finds hilarious. Uh, Mance then appears from the back of the tent, and he explains to John that the wildlings do not kneel for anyone. They then have a bit of a chat uh, about John killing Corrin Halfhand and what John's doing there. And Mance quickly concludes that John isn't there because he wants to be free from his Night's Watch vows, but because he wants to be a hero. I thought it was a pretty good exchange. I mean, when I had initially seen this scene, I hadn't read the books yet. So I remember liking Mance immediately and Tormund too. Um, And I remember feeling pretty engaged with the Wildling story at that stage. What did you guys think? Well, they cast my TV boyfriend there. Um, Well, not my TV boyfriend. (laughs) They cast... um... Kieran Hans. He was Kieran he Hines. was uh, Captain Wentworth and Julius Caesar and oh I was very excited <laughs> and I realize he has not he's a kind of uh, bulked up a little bit but he's still yeah he's a fine he fine. could still get it from you yeah. is that what you're saying uh huh awesome yep <laughs> I mean I like I like Kieran Hines I think for me obviously having the book background. 
I was never. I could never really get a bead on where they were going with Mance, which is funny because I feel like they couldn't get a bead either. I think um, that's accurate. You yeah. know, Mance in the books is so charismatic. You know, he, there's a reason that he's he's convinced all these people to come join him and and try to you know attack the wall, and that is because he's he's really charismatic and. Um, I think that's kind of missing from the yeah. Kieran Hines portrayal. I think this is definitely how they wrote it for the show. Do you think that but... would have they would it would have helped if they'd shown him as he was in the books, you know, kind of singing and playing the lute and you know having people oh, yeah. watching I, I him and listening? It become, becoming yeah. a kind of cartoonish, frankly. No. <laughs> yeah, because I haven't read this part in the books, and I was going to ask, I was like, why do all these people follow him? And that was what kind of. Um, brought me to that character because I wanted to know why, but I never really figured that out he because is, it showed in early. He is really yeah, portraying really, as like he's really good in know. bed. Well, he, 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 <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny how Dalla is missing from this scene. Yeah, in, in the yeah. Show. Um, he, he, he's he's such an interesting character because you know, like he actually had snuck south of the wall and was present when Robert had come to Winterfell. Yeah, he was there at the feast, wasn't he? He was there. Yeah, he yeah. was there yeah. as hard. And uh, the rationale for John um, being there, well, what John tells him, is t- is totally different in the books, isn't it? He actually... Because, yeah, he's, because Mance, is, yeah, Mance is at the feast um, and... John actually says to him when he speaks to him at this stage in the show, he says, um, oh, I'm here because did you see where they put me at the feast? Did you see where they put the bastard? That's quite a powerful kind of, I guess, indicator of of society and how John does have reasons to not want to uh, be in the Night's Watch and to sort of adhere by that society's standards. So obviously they couldn't do that in the show because Mance wasn't at the feast. He wasn't there at the time. So they changed John's uh, reason for being there to him wanting to, what is it? Uh, he, he saw what was happening at Crusters with the babies and he, he's not there for that. He's there for to protect life. I think the reason, I think Chicky, you hit on it. The reason he doesn't work so well is because they couldn't figure him out. Yeah. And that's, I think, and they went with, they cast an actor who has the chops and the gravitas to try to pull it off. But because they never had any real conviction with who this character was and what they wanted from him, I think that translates to the screen. Yeah, you yeah. know, that's it. It's interesting the way that they ditched him so early in season five. You know, they didn't at all do Mansa's dance arc and Mm. season three is funny this way because you can tell that they hadn't fully talked things through with Georgette about where everything was going I think they knew some of the major stuff even back then but you know we know that after season three they had after they'd shot season three I should say they had this long sit-down conversation for like several days in New Mexico with George and learned everything um both Benioff and Weiss and, and Brian Cogman was there as well um but of course obviously they they wrote and shot season three before that so they cast people like Mance and and Edmure and the Blackfish with really good you know fairly recognizable actors clearly intending to do something with them that then they later completely dropped and <laughs> decided not to do. Yeah. So I think the Mance, I think they, they, they fully intended to make Mance a much bigger character in season four and, and in season five, probably maybe even in, into season six. We don't know what's yeah. going on in the books, how long Mance survives. But yeah, I think this is just one of those things where they, yeah, they just didn't have a good beat on it and they, they kind of changed their minds with what they were going to do. Yeah. I mean, I think which is unfortunate they... because, 
incredible casting. I mean, Kieran Hines is a great actor. Like Calm just said, he's great. You know, he is great. Yeah, just- I think. Look, I think in a way they obviously understood that he was an important character, and I think they thought he would be a bigger player. But as you say, they weren't really sure what to do with him. I think their reading of the character wasn't particularly good. So, yeah, instead of getting this really charismatic, powerful leader type character. Um, as I said, I hadn't read the books when I initially saw this scene. And after reading the books, um, I then had I had pretty big issues with Mads and also with Tormund. I think I discussed it a little bit when we were doing season five mm. about how Tormund comes across quite, I don't know, ca- kind of cardboardy in comparison to his book counterpart, who's really funny and, again, another charismatic kind of character. So, yeah, I guess for the, the show watchers who don't read the books, uh, these characters might be presenting okay. But, yeah, for people who are, are more familiar with them by the books, not so much. But this was a great scene. I mean, everything it about this scene, scene is great. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really good. Well, we're going on to a not-so-great scene, in my opinion. We've come to our first sex position scene of the season, <laughs> and we had to wait a whole 12 minutes to get there. <laughs> Thankfully, it's a quick, it's a quick one. I know, that's what she said. Um, so anyway, Bron <laughs> is enjoying the lavish attentions of a prostitute who seems to encourage audience participation, inviting Bron to remove her small clothes with his mouth. Alas, before he can, they are interrupted by Pod, who tells Bron that Tyrion requires his presence. It is a matter of life and death. So I don't know if you guys have anything to say about that one. It's a pretty quick scene. Uh, we'll move along. I mean, it is what it is. It it's is what it is. You nailed it in the <laughs> description. It is what it is. All right, so we're on to Tyrion now. And poor guy's locked himself away in his chamber, which is pretty understandable, considering that, you know, one of the Kingsguard tried to off him during the Battle of the Blackwater last season. Uh, Cersei knocks on his door and manages to convince Tyrion to let her in. Once inside, she mocks his new accommodations, uh, then quickly gets down to business. She says that she's heard Tyrion has arranged a meeting with Tywin, and she wants to know why. Turns out she's worried that Tyrion will slander her to their father, just like he did when they were children at Casterly Rock, and Cersei had a young servant girl beaten so badly she lost an eye. Any thoughts on this one? I love that that Tyrion has a reputation as being the tattletale in the family. (laughs) He is is a little brother, so isn't that kind of his role? It is, it is. I'm from a bigger family, I'm from a family of four siblings, and there's always one. There's always a tattletale, so I totally recognize this one. But it's funny, because knowing Tyrion and Tywin's relationship, it's like, why are they afraid of Tyrion being a tattletale? It's like, Tywin, I don't think he would take... Tyrion so right. seriously if yeah. you have this such negative relationship. Yeah, Tywin doesn't respect Tyrion at all, so why on earth would he respect anything that he has to tell him? Exactly. That's what I thought. I was like, it's like they're acting like kids, and he's just, she's just like, don't tell daddy on me. And- <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. But I think it does show, like, that Cersei's so paranoid, you know, like, even, yes. even here. She's so worried about, you know, what's going to happen with her, and, yeah, what he might say, and what that could mean for her. Yeah, which, you know, she has good cause, considering all the shit she's done while Tarwin's been away. <laughs> but you're right, I think it is a good indicator of her paranoia. Um, Alright, well, while this uh, this is all happening, Tyrion and Cersei are talking, Bronn and Pod arrive outside Tyrion's chamber. Uh, it's being guarded by Meryn Tran and another of the Kingsguard, whose name I'm not, I'm not sure who it was. Anyway, 
Uh, Bronn is thankfully spared from having to fight his way through to Tyrion as Cersei suddenly exits the room. So then we cut to Bronn and Tyrion enjoying a nice little stroll along the waterfront and Bronn tells Tyrion that if he's going to continue protecting him, he's going to need more money. Uh, Tyrion says to him, he seems a little offended, he says, I thought we were friends, and Bronn replies, we are, but I'm a soul sword, I sell my sword, which sounds a lot saucier than it actually is. Uh, another quick little scene. <laughs> you know what, I miss Tyrion and Bronn, you guys. I miss yeah, this dynamic. I know, I love that bromance. You, yeah. you, you don't miss Jamie and Bronn in Dawn? You know, I like Jamie and Bronn. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't miss them in Dorne, but... <laughs> yeah. I think, honestly, I think that Bronn uh, pairs up well with anyone. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. No. All right. Um, we're moving across to another place now, uh, and it's Davos. And he's survived the Battle of the Blackwater, um, kind of. He sort of... It seems like he's washed up on a rock that's sort of in the middle of the ocean. Uh, and the poor guy's not looking very good either. His skin is very dry. It's covered in lesions from exposure. Thankfully, a ship appears on the horizon. Uh, Davos is saved, or is he? Um, a small boat reaches him, and a man on board asks him whom he serves. And Davos hesitates for a split second and then says he serves one true king of Westeros, Stannis Baratheon. Thankfully, that was a secret password, and the guy throws out a rope for Davos. I like I like this scene a lot. I mean, this is such a, a, a Davos thing to do. You know, it's like, well, I might die, but, you know, I'm going to gonna be yeah. honest and be myself anyway. Yeah, I like that they actually showed that split second of hesitation, though, because, you know, it, it really could get him killed if he says the wrong name. So, but yeah, despite all that, he, uh, he will be loyal to the end. I think that pretty much sums up Davos. Uh, so Davos is now aboard the ship uh, and he's talking to the ship's captain who turns out to be his old pirate friend Salador Sam Davos learns that Stannis has returned to Dragonstone to lick his wounds and that he speaks to no one but the Red Woman who is burning any men who speak against her Davos begs Salador to take him back to Dragonstone indicating that while he may not be able to turn status against Melisandre, he may be able to kill her. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, this is... It's interesting that they did this tiny little plot. I mean, I get it. I think they wanted to, from the beginning, set up a, a you know, a really clear conflict between Melisandre and Davos, but... um it's been interesting how they've strung it along so slowly since season two. Cause I mean, this is kind of how it started at the beginning with, you know, Davos and, and Maester Crescent. And it's just has slowly, slowly progressed. And it's so funny being done with season five and here both Davos and Melisandre ended up at the wall on the show. <laughs> it's like, it's really funny to see that this, this dynamic is apparently going to continue between the two of them. <laughs> Even after status is dead, <laughs> they'll, yeah. they will be together forever. Yeah. I mean, obviously it, it makes you wonder how Davos is going to getting into season five now, but how Davos is actually going to react to find uh, when he finds out what Melisandre's part in uh, burning Shireen was. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, Anyway. Oh gosh, I was hoping that they were gonna get to that this season, but uh. yeah. Oh, to getting to the, to the reveal to see what Davos's reaction yeah. would be. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. I mean, we were talking about what we thought they would do with Davos um, when he found out what Stannis's role was in it, but obviously it doesn't matter now because Stannis is dead. So I will be curious to see where Davos actually goes um, after this. I 
fact that they're going to forget that his wife, he has a wife and he's going to probably join the night's watch because otherwise, I mean, honestly, I mean, with Stannis dead, Shireen's dead. I don't know why he'd be sticking around, but I think that's what they're going to do. Yeah. Because they've got to keep him in the action or they're going to have to give him the role of if they're going to bring back Rick in, I don't even know, but that's where I think that's going to go. Yeah. Not but they're not real good with continuity, even their own continuity. So that is true. I don't know though. They ha- it is interesting how they have played this thread so deliberately. This this Melisandre versus Davos thing, which I mean, there's certainly a sense of in the books, but it it, it doesn't seem to get the focus it gets on the show. Um, I feel oh, like you know, he needs to kill her. Like yeah, I feel like that's what's gonna how it's gonna happen. It kind of would feel like justice if it was Davos, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I was going to say, I, I, it's nice to see Salador San here. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would I love like to him. see him back on the show. I hope that they bring him back. They had him in season four, and I kind of kept assuming I'd yeah. show up, like maybe taking John to Hardhome or something, but it never mm-hmm. happened. Yeah, we had him in season four in another sex position scene, didn't we? That was yeah. <laughs> the tubs. Uh, oh god, where were they in Bravos? Was it Bravos? Yeah, yep. yeah. He's a terrific that was actor. When they go though. for their bank loan. Yeah, yeah. He's a terrific he actor. I'd right. love to see more of him. Uh, all right. So <laughs> now we've come to Rob and oh, one of Comma's boyfriends, Bruce. Yep. Uh, so Rob and his men have arrived at Harren Hall. Uh, and it's pretty well deserted, but for 200 slaughtered Norsemen. So what happens here? I assume the mountain, like, up and left and basically put all the prisoners to the sword. I assume that's what happened. Did we actually see that? We, I don't think we did. We don't. You know, it's funny that you asked that because yeah. I was going, what happened here? Did I miss something at the yeah. end of last season? And I don't think we did. I think, they, I think they're just hoping you'll fill in the blanks that these were prisoners. That Yeah, it must have been yeah. the mountain. Because didn't Tywin leave and leave the mountain there? Yep. Yes. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting to me. Sometimes they're willing to let the audience try to fill in the gaps, and other times they feel the need to like hit you over the head. There is no in between. No, I think yeah. you're absolutely but right. But it ends in season two. The Heron Hall bit ends with, um, at least as far as who's in charge, as, Ty- as the Mount Tywin leads the Mountain in charge. Yeah. yeah. So. I assumed, and then having read the books, that you know what had happened was that the mountain had left his own special stamp on things. Mm. Um, yeah, I think Rob told Bolton that it that it was the mountain before they he? entered. Oh, did he? Yeah. I'd yeah, I kept rewinding it. that scene over and over again because I was confused as well as to what happened. Well, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's it an like interesting, it's an interesting point that Comma and Jin make because this is something that um, I've thought about quite frequently before, and that is how the you know the casual or you know just the show only people are. Uh, sort of interact with the show and how it can be quite confusing when they don't have that book background because what the show does is it's it's even from season one I know we've talked about a lot for season five but even in season one it struggles with providing that cohesive sort of narrative that is easy to follow Um, so I think sometimes for the people who just watch the show and haven't read the books um, they do tend to get confused and I see it with with my own family and friends who only watch the show you know if you watch with them you'll often have to field several questions about what exactly is going on and I think this scene yeah yeah, this scene is like a prime example yeah 
yeah, it, it's 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 what I call the 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 question pause. It's we yes, have to pause the show so I can it. answer the question to fill in the blanks about what's happening. In this yeah, scene. yeah. But the thing is, we didn't even know what was happening in this scene. <laughs> well, no. With the, I mean, like I can infer what's happening. I'm assuming. I mean, yeah. what, what happens in the books is it Amory Lorch? Yeah. Uh, who who? Uh, abandons. Uh, I think. He, I think he abandons Heron Hall. I don't even well, think they try to put like, up a defense. All that but... stuff is is quite a mess when they get there. Well, because see, in the books, well, because Arya there for the transfer. Well, yeah, and Arya helps release the, the whole... northern prisoners, right? Right. Because yeah. she's um. There's that whole weasel soup thing, which it's... they totally bypassed in the show, we and then she becomes Roose Bolton's cupbearer. Mm-hmm. Um, which they also got rid of. Although, honestly, if, if people think Tywin should have recognized Arya, of all people, I think Roos should have recognized Arya. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but there's no... This is, a, you know, the show cut all of that out. So I think they did the best they could with what they had done. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, anyway, um, we... We get Kyber. We, they do get Kyber. <laughs> um, I will briefly mention that uh, Rickard Karstark is there too and he's standing with Roos and they're kind of surveying the dead and Karstark isn't happy at all you know he's really still grieving the death of his son and he is furious that Jamie has been set free unsurprisingly uh, and Roos assures him that he will be Jamie will be found and brought to justice uh, and in another part of the I think they're across the courtyard uh, we've got Rob and he tells his men to find Catelyn a chamber that will serve as a cell uh, Talisa chides Rob for locking up his mother, but Rob stands firm, saying, you know, she freed Jamie Lannister. And yes, as Chicky said, one of the dead suddenly comes back to life. It's a miracle. And it's everybody's favourite mad scientist, Kyburn. Uh, I was just a little surprised at the time. I remember when I first watched this going, man, that's a lot of focus on Kyburn. But they have really played up his character on the show. I totally get it because... He is somebody that is kind of fun to dig into. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's yeah. so weird. I, th- I, do, I do feel like, though, kind of yeah, towards the end of season five, they really were playing up that kind of mad scientist, almost caricature type of role for Kyburn. <laughs> but I don't mind. As you say, I find him really entertaining to watch. He's, a, he's an interesting character, that's for sure. Oh, and, and very well cast. I, I, well I cast. like yeah, they the, did good. the way they went with who this. Is, yeah. Do you know who the actor is? Who is the actor? No, uh, I feel like Comer is on Internet Movie Anton Database. Anton Lesser? Yes, I Anton. am. I am looking it up. Yes. Anton Lesser. Anton Lesser. Yeah, well done, Chicky. So. All right. Awesome. Um, Anton Lesser. <laughs> so from Bruce now to another one of Comer's boyfriends, and it's uh, it's the meeting between Tywin and Tyrion, and it's about as awkward as you would expect. Uh, Tywin is really not impressed with how Tyrion handled his appointment as acting hand of the king, uh, saying that Tyrion wasted his time betting harlots and drinking with thieves. Uh, Tyrion, for his part, he seems really quite upset that Tywin didn't visit him when he was recuperating from his battle wounds, and he actually said as much to Cersei earlier in the in the episode. Uh, and he also tells his father that he deserves recognition for his part in them winning the battle. And then he asks him for what is his by right, Casterly Rock. Tywin is... Willing to offer Tyrion better accommodations and in time a suitable wife. Uh, but then he says there is no way in hell that he would mock the family name by giving Tyrion Castle Rock. He then goes on to tell Tyrion 
exactly what he thinks of him, which pretty much amounts to him indicating that he only calls Tyrion his son because he can't prove otherwise. It's pretty brutal. Um, I actually thought this was a terrific scene, though. What did you guys think? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm reminded of, um, from Mad Men, there's a a quote one character says when she says to uh, her husband, she goes, oh, honey, don't go to the well. There's no water there. And it's like, you're kind of like looking at these kids going, your father is Tywin Lannister. You know what he's like. And yet you go expecting, you know, different results. Yeah. And that's exactly what that. And Cersei has a scene later on in the season where it's the same thing. They want, they want his approval, his approbation, his, you know, all that stuff. And they, they have to know intellectually that is not going to happen with daddy. And yet they keep, well, because children will. Yeah, know, I think but. that's, I mean, it's really, it's an interesting dynamic to look at because I think, as you say, children almost always seek the approval of their parents. And even when they have thoroughly learned otherwise, it's that kind of hope that never really dies, I think. I think, and it's really beautifully portrayed here with Tyrion because, you know, you're watching it and you're thinking, why on earth would Tyrion be upset that Tywin didn't come and see him when he was wounded. I mean, surely he knows by now that, you know, how Tywin is and he doesn't care about him. He doesn't respect him. In fact, he he thinks he's, what does he say, an ill-made, spiteful little creature. (laughs) Like, and he can't prove that he's his, but God damn it, if he could prove that he was, he can't prove that he wasn't his, but if he could, God damn it, he wouldn't recognise him at all. And we do have that scene I don't know which season it is. Is it later this season or in season four where Tywin basically says, you know, I I could have left you to die as a baby and I would have. It's at the end of this season. Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty clear how Tywin considers Tyrion and what he just what he thinks of him. And yet Tyrion, being his child, uh, never really wants to give up that hope that his, his daddy will care for him. It's really quite heartbreaking. Yeah, it's like that scene... It's- uh, sorry, just with Cersei, he said, "Like I'm, you know, he's like I'm sure Father, you know, loves me. I'm sure he cares about me. It's like he's trying to convince himself because he knows yeah. it's probably not really true. It's, it, yeah, it's hard yeah, to watch. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and just quickly getting back to the scene generally, and I think the reason why it played so well is because if you go back to the books, this scene is lifted almost entirely from yep. the book." And I think it showed, like, <laughs> that the, the dialogue was almost exact. So this is one of the things that the show adapts well when they <laughs> kind of very closely stick to the source material. And obviously you've got Peter Dinklage and Charles Dance who will do anything justice, pretty much. All right. Um, so next scene, we're still in King's Landing. Uh, but now we've got Sansa and Shay. And they're standing by the waterfront. There seems to be a lot of waterfront shots in this this episode, I noticed as I was watching. They're standing by the waterfront. They're playing this little game where they guess the destinations of the ships leaving port. Or I should say Santa's playing the game and Shay is basically ruining all her fun by refusing to play. And then <laughs> Littlefinger appears, ruining everyone's fun. <laughs> um, and he asks to speak to Santa alone. He informs her that he recently saw both her mother and her sister... And there's this little beat where you can see that Sansa is really, really delighted to hear that Arya is still alive. I thought it was a really neat little reaction. Uh, Sansa then pleads with Littlefinger to take her home. And after some faux hesitation on Littlefinger's part, he agrees to make the necessary arrangements. 
Um, and we have Shay. She's watching all of this go down from a distance when Roz approaches her and advises Shay to watch out for Sansa. Littlefinger cannot be trusted, telling us what we already know. <laughs> this was I, a good little scene. Yeah. I have issues with the... Um, well, the one thing I thought they did kind of nice was they set it up the way Littlefinger is. Like, he doesn't exactly say he's seen Arya, because I don't think he actually knows. He's just holding that out there to see how she reacts, to see what she knows, because that's mm. what Littlefinger does, and mm. I like that. Mm. Um, my issue, and I actually I like the scene with Roz um, and Shay, and I kind of liked that emphasis for the show viewers that Sansa is important. I think a lot of people, a lot of show viewers watch the show and just because the Starks aren't as fabulously wealthy as the Lannisters, etc. People tend to think of them as these, I don't know, lesser lords or whatever. I'm like, no, she's a, a big freaking deal. Right. Yeah, because um, Ross talks about how when she was born, you know, there's the a big celebration and the bells night. rang. Right, yeah. My issue is, this is a this is the sort of 101 of filmmaking where you show, don't tell. This is that Shay and Sansa have this huge bond and they're besties. And mm. I'm like, we've never really seen them earn that relationship. So it went from her, like just basically starting out being the maid to, you know, being fiercely protective. And I never understood how that actually came about. And the show has never done anything to make me convinced to believe that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was a little bit at the end of season two. I mean, like, if you remember during the Blackwater, how Shay was was protective of Sansa. There, I think it was slightly developing. I always kind of had a feeling there was some time passing here. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you look at Tyrion's wound, it's fairly well healed as opposed to what it was like at the end of season two. So I, I don't know. Well, and I mean, Davos was evidently out on that rock for a very long yeah. time. So yeah. I'm guessing you're right. Yeah. But then again, you, just, can't, you can't seem to match up times between different locations. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> it just, I never really felt like there was that sort of beat where we saw that bond occurring. It was like they went from, you know, A to D and we never saw B and C. And yeah, I guess... I tend to agree with you, Connor, actually. I feel like... It wasn't this scene necessarily where it seemed weird. It was, I don't remember the exact scene, but there was a scene maybe back in, oh God, season two, I guess, where it just automa- it, it, it then sort of automatically seemed that Shay was kind of BFFs with Sansa. Like she was very <clears throat> protective of her. And as you say, we didn't really see a huge amount of build up before that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think that it was particularly well-developed in that respect. That said, I do enjoy the dynamic between Shay and Sansa very much. I do like the fact that Shay feels very protective of her. I just wish it had been developed a little bit better. Yeah, I enjoy it too. I mean, it's it's one of those things, you know, as a book reader, you didn't want to enjoy because, you know, I, yeah. you even know though I, I kind of was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt mm. and that, okay, they changed Shay, so they're changing Shay's fate or something, but... Nope. Um, <laughs> no, they made it worse. They are <laughs> flat out betray Sansa anyway. If but, it can be made worse, they will make it worse. <laughs> but, I mean, I really did like this, and I actually liked the fact with Roz that they had her... Um, bring her own backstory into it which is that she's also a northerner and that you know she was from somewhere very close to winterfell and and did know the starks and everything i thought i thought it was actually pretty good continuity um i had kind of forgotten that that they were doing that fairly well at this point um you know i mean this was this i mean 
I really have very few quibbles with this episode. I kind of like the way that they pick up the threads from from season two, and and I feel like they're far more on point than they were at the end of season two. Yeah, I agree with you. It's funny, as I was watching it, and I was sort of typing up some notes, and I was thinking, wow, this is such a refreshing change from the last few episodes of season five, where (laughs) I, I was struggling to find the positives in the episodes, whereas with this one, I really didn't have a huge amount of criticisms. So... Yes, there was a there was a time when at least individual episodes didn't uh, provoke so much criticism. But as I said before, I do think they do still have that issue with providing a, a sort of a cohesive storyline that that people can follow along if they're not. Oh yeah. yeah, I don't disagree. There were there were signs that there would eventually be bigger problems later. I think at this point, but yeah. at this point, yeah, I love it. And the other thing I loved about this scene is that this is one of those times that that Game of Thrones and like you know we've talked about this before can do something that the books really can't do, and that is throw together some characters and see what happens. I mean, you know, this is yeah. kind of fun Shay, watch Littlefinger talk to Sansa like this, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting and it, it's, I enjoy it. Even Roz there, it's funny how much more appreciation I have for poor Roz at this oh, point. Oh god, but... me too. <laughs> the funny thing is with Roz is that there was a lot of internet hate directed at her because I mean, it, it's understandable in a way because let's face it, I mean, <laughs> A lot of, of Ross's job is to really provide that sort of sex positioning type stuff. Um, but yeah, I think it found her much more interesting when she was dressed. Yeah. I liked her this yeah. season. I really did. Yeah. And uh, I thought I was actually okay with her development for the most part. I mean, mm. I thought it was well done. And, you know, I think it was nice to have that insight into what Littlefinger was planning and doing and that little bit of suspense. I thought she, and I liked Esme Bianco in this quite a bit. Yeah, well, I, and if I you think keep she's in mind right. that she is one of Varys's little birds at this point as well. Yeah, yeah, that does add another dimension. Yeah, to this they scene. did add some complexity to her, which I thought was mm-hmm. fantastic. It's what you were saying, Chicky, when they take the time to actually flesh out the characters a little bit and to make them relevant and to make their backstories relevant to the story rather than just using them as props. You know, that's when we start to like the characters. So I agree with you. I liked her in this scene as well. All right, um, let's move along to our very favourite character. <laughs> it's Danny and Jorah, and they're on a ship, um, and they're watching the the dragons kind of flying around. And Drogon actually does this, I think it's Drogon, does this neat little trick where he sweeps into the water, catches a fish, then throws it in the air and kind of roasts it before he catches it again. I thought, actually, thought the effects were pretty good with the dragons in this scene. Um, yeah. Anyway, so Danny, uh, as they're watching the dragons, Danny says to Jorah that whilst they, the dragons are getting bigger, they're not growing fast enough and she's going to need an army. Jorah replies that they're going to be in Astapor by nightfall uh, and the Unsullied are the greatest soldiers in the world. Uh, unsurprisingly, Danny's not super keen on buying slave soldiers. She points to the seasick Dothraki on the deck below them and says <laughs> that if they were willing to follow her across the Poison Sea, more will surely follow. Uh, and Jorah <laughs> says to Danny that she's going to need to prove herself strong to gain the loyalty of a true Kalasar. <laughs> this is so beautiful. I remember the first time I saw this, I was like, wow, it's so funny after watching season five where... 
I mean, I don't know if you guys experienced this watching this season three episode, but I was like, oh man, the production values have gotten so much better even from here. And I remember how good this felt at the time. Yeah. But I love this scene on the ship. I love everything about it. This was a really good interaction mm-hmm. between Danny and Jorah. I mean, I feel like this is peak show Danny right here. I don't know about you guys, but like this e- this early like season three stuff is, I think, some of her best. And mm-hmm. Um, her her story is so clear at this moment, you know, like you you so clearly understand what's happening with her, and I think that helps a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in a your nice ability to take, enjoy it. I think one of the big factors in that is her characterization is consistent. It's relatively consistent mm-hmm. in this season, and you know, we spent a lot of time last season, season five, talking about how she seemed, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, well, a little bit. <laughs> she kind of seemed. I don't really want to use the word schizophrenic. Um, you know what I mean. She yes. she didn't have a consistent personality. She was all over the to, place. Right, yeah. she was all over the place. Um, and that really did, uh, I don't know, it just it provided some confusion, I, I thought. Even amongst book readers, I wasn't really sure where she was coming from half the time. So you're yeah, right. Her I goals think, are so clear at this point yes. as opposed to later. And um, you know, obviously, she's just so much better when she's playing against Ian Glenn. I don't know. You, Amelia and so Ian true. Glenn are, are the best combination that Amelia has. I don't yes. know what else. You're right. You're, you're right. I mean, we've said it before, and I think um, even when we were talking back in season one, when we had the scene with her emerging from the, the pyre with the dragons. Was that season yeah. one? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. you know, that End is – Yeah, that would have been a scene that would have seemed – quite comical, you know, with the little dragons hatching and ones hovering over her arm. But, you know, she's with Ian Glenn and Ian Glenn somehow manages to elevate all the material and even the actors around him. So I think you're right. Um, Amelia does work a lot better when she's sort of facing Ian Glenn. And Yeah. Well, is... and when she has really clear problems, I mean, it's very obvious, you know, she's got the sick Dothraki, and she's got the dragons who are playing, and yeah. clearly getting bigger. They're bigger than the last time that we saw them, quite a bit, actually. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, I, I really like this setup. I remember watching this whole episode and really being happy with the whole thing, and 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 this yeah. just brought it all back. I think that's that, the thing, like the time. Yeah. I was on a booze cruise once when I was uh, in college. <laughs> this really reminded me of that. Story all the time. <laughs> Chicky's like, wait a minute, I've been there. <laughs> Their vomit um, looked like top ramen. Oh, God! Oh, so oh God! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's move along to God. Comma, how many boyfriends do you have in this show? Okay, it's Stannis. Yay! <laughs> well, I have to have a lot because I keep killing them off. True, true. Don't worry, I think Roos might last for a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, what's happened is uh, Davos has obviously convinced Salador to return him to Dragonstone. Uh, and as expected, uh, Davos finds Melisandre by Stannis' side, and he is not happy. Um, Davos tells Stannis and Mel that it's not cool to burn men alive simply for believing in different gods. Mel tells Davos that she is not his enemy and that she would have, in fact, saved Stannis' men from burning on the Blackwater if only she'd been allowed to go with them. That worked out so well when she failed to save Stannis' men from burning when Ramsay attacked their camp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, Mel... Um, is twenty twenty. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so Stannis. Uh, Mel then references Davos' dead son, which provokes Davos into pulling a knife on her. Uh, and Stannis orders his guards to throw Davos into the dungeons. 
And as he's being dragged away, Mel tells him she will pray for him. So nice of her. It was. But, but man, you're right, Chicky. They're really playing up that sort of antagonistic nature of their relationship, aren't they? Well, yeah, you know, I, I was going to say, I, I actually forgot. They, they do have great chemistry. Maybe that's part of it. <laughs> Liam were, Cunningham and, and were, were they Reese in a Manhattan movie together where they played lovers? <laughs> they, yeah. They've had experience. Yes, they did they play were. lovers in a movie. Yeah. I don't remember the name of it, and I'm not looking it up, but they, they've done they've <laughs> acted together before. They do see, When you see them in interviews helped. together, they do seem to, to have a genuine friendship, and I think that's something that translates. As, you know, we see with Nikolai and Gwen as well. They're obviously great friends off set, and it definitely translates on screen and like peter and lena as yeah. well yes type of thing yeah oh this is yeah this is you know it's tough dealing with the the characterization of stannis even at this point i mean you know they even then they were having him burn people for religious reasons which mm-hmm. it's like he would intend to execute someone and then he would let melisandre burn them but it's like he he was not burning them because they didn't believe in in Relor or anything in the books and when I look back on this, I was watching it and I'm like, this is the first hint that they never got this guy. Yeah, yeah. They did fairly well in season two up until I want to say his last appearance. But to me, this is the indicator. I mean, as I said, hindsight is twenty twenty. Rewatching it, that they've got no freaking clue. Because as Chicky just said, I mean... You know, he has had people burn, but it's because, you know, they were already going to go. The um, uncle or cousin he has burned and um, and they do it on the show. It's because the guy was basically trying to broker a deal with Tywin. Well, he, he has him executed for treason. He just allows right. Melisandre yes. to burn him as the Right, right. There's a reason. Yeah. And yeah. At, at some point in, I think, Dan- or Dancer, one of the leaked chapters of Winds, you know, she wants to burn people to, like help him out and he's like you know pray harder no we're not doing that Mm -hmm. right and i think they just if they don't understand the character that's it it's it's their own interpretation and quite often it's bizarre um so for me this is like this is problematic i i wonder you know in retrospect calm i halfway wonder if it was this that they just didn't want to devote the time to the stannis storyline to explain how he could follow Melisandre, but still be entirely skeptical of her magic and her religion at the same time. I think that's partly it. I think they had picked out, because the people they devote the time to, Danny, to John, those are the fan favorites or the ones that they have decided are the fan favorites. Yeah. And I, t- I, and I don't think, I mean, I like middle the middle-aged men. That's my gig, you know. But <laughs> I am not hey. their core demographic. They are going for the fanboys. If Common was running this the... show, it would just be status. Bruce and Ty would interact. But I think there are as many of you know the older people arcs that there are. But I don't think they wanted to spend that kind of time. Yeah, I, I think do, you're right. I do think what Chicky says has merit, though. Um, I think it, it again. Oh, I'm agreeing come, with her. Yeah, I think yeah. She's absolutely right. Yeah, I think it again comes down to uh, them not being good with those shades of grey. Because as Chicky was saying, you know, they didn't really want to show how someone like Stannis could follow um, a religious zealot, essentially. I mean, he's meant to be this really rigid guy who's into justice and doing what's right. And then again, he's somehow <laughs> following this woman who doesn't well she has her own code I guess but yes yeah, she's not really into those kind of things and 
it's something that I think would probably require a lot of thought and time to adapt properly. And I think you're right. I think yeah. they probably just gave up on it. Well, and you know, it's, it's like, that way... with Tyrion. They didn't want to go there and make him darker. Yeah. I mean, and this is the season where we really see that come to play. I, I think they're just, that's not the TV they're interested in telling. Yeah. Well, that's it. And, and it's, yeah, it, this this is often the thing. I, I I almost think you know I've heard them in interviews. I don't know which one of them it is, if it's Benioff or Weiss, but basically say how concerned they are about the audience understanding what goes on, which is funny because of how often we don't understand what's going on. Yeah, but um, they do seem to have this thing of feeling like they really need to give major hints for some things, and they tend to be these these more shade of gray things. Like it's just like they're not super comfortable trying to tell those kind of, you know, people who ride the margins of morality stories, they, they, even though they, they tell the stories, they, they like to be able to let the viewer go one way or the other. Oh, that's still a bad guy or that's a good guy. And, you know, we see this with Jamie. They can't seem to walk the line very well with him either. Is he good yeah. or is he bad? They, they kind of flip flop on it. So. And here's the irony of ironies. Are they on CBS? No. Are they on ABC? Uh, no. Yeah. Are they even on AMC? No, they are on HBO, a, a network that, of all of the networks out there capable of with an audience base capable of appreciating morally compromised, interesting, dynamic, complex characters, it's this network. You're right. And you know what else I would add to that is of all the things to adapt, why do you go to a song of ice and fire if you're not comfortable dealing with these very great people? You know, because that's the whole that's kind of the point. I mean, you know, everybody's great. Everybody who isn't gray is getting grayer. I mean, look at like, say, even the Brienne in the books. I mean, she's probably about to get super gray in the next book. You know, I mean, like, that's just what George does. Um, I don't know. It's one of those things. I guess we just have to accept. I, I don't it, know. It's gonna be. Yeah, it's, it's gonna be cool in the books when you know Brienne starts killing people because in the show she's already a, like remorseless killing machine. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jim. Were you gonna say something? I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <Sorry>. I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. So, again, this is something that, I mean, is has been an issue, I think, from the very beginning. And you do see it really, really clearly with, as you say, the morally grey characters and characters like Stannis, the characters like Jamie. They don't really seem to know quite how to present them um i think they think that they're portraying them as gray but it's just isn't <laughs> yeah. translating well yeah i think you're right um and it's it's kind of like what comma was saying they either bang <laughs> like sort of hit you over the head with something or they kind of just neglect to present it all together they can't seem to find that kind of happy medium where they're presenting uh a sort of more ambiguous uh, scene, I guess, and letting viewers come to their own conclusions. Uh, anyway, um, let's move along. So we're back at King's Landing now, and we have Joffrey and Marjorie in litters being carried through the mean streets of Fleabottom. Uh, Marjorie decides to get out of her litter and bless the small folk with her presence. She finds her way to an orphanage. Uh, and she stops to talk to some of the children who lost their family in the battle, telling them that their fathers gave their lives to defend the city, and from now on the Crown will take care of them. The scene ends with Joffrey staring at Marjorie from behind the bars of his litter, looking very confused indeed. 
<laughs> so, you know, obviously this is Marjorie trying to gain the public's favour. Um, and obviously it's a, a show insert because we see so little of Marjorie in the books. But I think it's, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before. I think what the show has done well um, is kind of give more insight into Marjorie's character and, and the intentions of the yeah. Tyrells, I think, in general. And obviously, I think Natalie Dormer plays a part as well because she's she's so brilliant. But yeah, I think the the writing for Marjorie is actually pretty good at sort of presenting her as more mm-hmm. of a... Well, uh, it's, it, they, they've done a good job of fleshing her out. They've had to. Yeah. They, they've made her a bigger character. You, you understand, I understand it in the show... Um, it, it really has made sense the way that they set Marjorie and Cersei up against one another yeah. and pulling Marjorie's character to the forefront on the show actually makes a lot of sense. I think it's one of the better adaptation choices that they've made, actually. And, well, and this is a really great visual uh, shorthand for some of the difference between Marjor- Marjorie and, and Cersei, seeing mm-hmm. Marjorie out amongst the people yeah. and touching Orphans. That's, and that's it, isn't it? Even, even with show Cersei characterization, you have no trouble understanding that this is something Cersei would never in a million <laughs> years do for any reason, you know? So, Well, we see, we see it really clearly in the next scene. Um, so what's happening is there's a... <laughs> it's one of those awkward dinner parties that we love so much. Um, we've got Cersei and Joffrey. They're sitting down with Marjorie and Loras and they're, they're having a meal together. Um, and it's kind of... This cool power play um, that's quite entertaining to watch because it's not particularly subtle, but, you know, this is the way that Cersei works. So Cersei is kind of throwing insults at Marge. She's kind of implying she's wearing too little clothing. And then they start talking about, you know, her recent trip to the slums, which Cersei clearly thinks was reckless. And then we've got Marge playing the ever-gracious queen to be um, and ex- kind of extolling the virtue of doing charity work and Cersei's just sitting there rolling her eyes so hard I'm surprised they don't fall out of her head. Um, and it's something that, yeah, it's it's something that really highlights the differences in Cersei and Marjorie's ruling philosophies. Like, you know, Cersei's all about making people fear her and Marjorie wants to make them love her and I don't think it was ever more evident than in this scene. Yeah. Oh, I mean, these are such amazing scenes. Can we talk about how much we miss Jack Gleason as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, he was so good. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, he makes these scenes. Um, You know, it, this is another one. They put, they put four characters together, kind of like the Littlefinger, Sansa, Roz, and, and Shay scene, and, and just kind of see what happens. And I loved everything about this whole run through. Everything about Joffrey and Marjorie in the streets, and then we go into this dinner party. This was great. I mean, this this is just fun to watch. You don't even stop. Like, it's hard to stop and, and make any mental notes when you're watching something like this because it's just so good. There's so much talent on screen. Yeah. And, and, you know, I feel like Joffrey. I, I feel ahead. like Joffrey is at like actually intrigued by Marjorie and yeah. like interested by her, which is what I liked in this scene. Is that he's really like confused. Like, what is this kindness? <laughs> I've never seen it. Before. Charity? Did you see the way he stumbled over the word charitable? It's like he's never heard of it before. But you know, it's interesting that you raised the fact that he seemed really into Marjorie because in this scene, I kind of got a sense that he was. I guess even more sexually interested in her, which is something that yeah. we don't really see in the books at all. Like you don't really think of him as having any kind of sexuality at all. So yeah, it was it was interesting to watch that kind of play out and it makes you wonder, like, is he sexually interested in her? I mean there were certainly sexual undertones with that whole crossbow scene that we get later yeah. on. 
I think it's a combination of things. I think he's wanting to be a man and get away from Cersei, who wants to hold on to the apron strings and the power as long as possible. And he doesn't want this. So he's, you know, seen and out there with the, you know, the new wife who can, you know, he doesn't realize she's controlling him because he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, <laughs> so I think that's part of it. It's also he's just like baffled, like as we we've all just said. I mean, clearly, this is something that the Lannisters just don't do, um, or at least in the show. But <laughs> I I really want to um, there's something. I'm not a huge fan of Michelle Clapton and her costuming, um, and I'm not that sorry to see her go, but um, I, well, because some of the stuff she does is just cracky as hell, but I really liked in this season, and it's it begins here, this sort of war between Marjorie and Cersei and how it's played out in clothing. Yeah, because um, Cersei's kind of wearing that armor, yeah. armor dress. Yeah. Right. Her clothes start to get like a little "what the hell" kind of "what the fuck are you wearing?" And Marjorie's <laughs> very much all about exposure, and you start to see it play out with the ladies in the court and the ladies in King, King's Landing, and who's sort of still holding to the old guard and who's starting to dress and wear their hair differently. And I, I kind of liked that. I thought that was a neat. So thing. it's like a battle of fashion. Whose fashion will reign yeah. supreme? Well, and it's a way of, uh, it's a shorthand. <laughs> it's a shorthand for who's got more influence. Yeah. Because as Marjorie becomes more ascendant, the women, the hair is no longer that strange, like, concoction of braids <laughs> that Cersei's so fond of wearing. It's less, ex- you know, and you see it with Sansa. I was going to say, Sansa's like the barometer of that, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's, you know, she's, not in a position to be a trendsetter and she has no power at the court, whereas Marjorie is her star is in, on the rise. Yeah. So I liked how also, that played out. Yeah, it also shows a relationship between them and the people too. So like Cersei feels like she needs to like armor herself up, because uh, she has a lot of distrust in um, you know, people in Flea Bottom and just everybody around her paranoia. And Marjorie is just more like she doesn't she could wear really white clothing she doesn't feel the need to have to protect herself yeah right it's yeah yeah, it's reflective of the as i was saying the differences in their ruling philosophies where i mean cersei is trying to make people fear her which will you know lead to i mean that's a dangerous situation you don't want the people to hate you in a way and marjorie obviously just wants to get amongst them and and make them love her so you're right it's much more of an open kind of fashion for Marge whereas Cersei is sticking to the closed off kind of armour stuff it's a really good observation alright, shall we get back to Danny? I don't know, okay <laughs> <laughs> we have to okay, it's the last couple of yeah. scenes of the episode um, so Danny's now arrived in Astapor uh, and she is having a meeting with Master Crassness to discuss the terms of buying his Unsullied uh, while a young woman, who we've come to know as Missande, translates, uh, Krasnus exposits that the Unsullied are warriors of absolute discipline and loyalty. They begin their training at age five and undergo rigorous preparation, essentially having their humanity stripped from them to the extent that they don't fear anything, not even death. Um, to prove it, Krasnus cuts off one of the Unsullied's nipples. The Unsullied does not even flinch. I definitely did, though. That was pretty gross. <laughs> um, so throughout the meeting, Krasnus makes several offensive comments towards Danny, believing she can't understand him. Of course, we know better. 
uh, and then Krasnus ends in meeting by telling Danny he has 8,000 Unsullied to sell, and she has until tomorrow to decide. So many things about this scene. Well, okay, let's just, <laughs> the elephant in the room, coming off of season five, obviously you're sitting here listening to, <laughs> well, Miss Sande as the mouse mouthpiece of, of Krasnus, like, is totally talking up the Unsullied and how amazing they are as warriors. And we've come off this season where they've done nothing but just fail and fail and fail and fail. I, there was like one part where they talk about how they're skilled in three different weapons, and I'm like, are they though? Like, it's hard. I, have a, I can fan wank it if you want. Go for it. My theory is that the like these are the original Unsullied and they're really good. And then they have the people they start training themselves. Maybe. I don't know. And those are the people who do such a shit poor showing in season five. That's, that's <laughs> or all I did got. Danny just fail to continue like the discipline that they used to and they kind of got lazy? <laughs> you know, no, no dead babies. <laughs> no dead babies, no dead puppies. Maybe they're just trained for like combat and what they're doing is more like spontaneous, just rebel like type. peacekeeping stuff or something. The guerrilla warfare. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. yeah. I don't know. I don't so know. they're not trained to fight that way. These like close range weapons, like the the short swords and stuff, that we don't see them use at all in season five. They really I, don't. <laughs> or was, this guy was just selling a whole huge bowl of. I was, <laughs> I was, I was going the whole time. I was like, Danny, make sure you get a warranty on this. <laughs> well, you know, maybe Krasnus is just a master marketer, and the Unsullied are really kind of crap. <laughs> And they've got this huge reputation, and everyone just like surrenders the moment they see them. And <laughs> yes, I like it. Let's go with this. Just trade on their reputation. But the other great thing about this scene is oh, Natalie Emmanuel. This was such an amazing introduction for Miss Sandy. Like yes, this was great. really well done. Yeah. Um, well, and the guy who plays Krasnus is awesome. He's good. He's really good. Oh God. Yeah. Hard, it, it, well, it has to be hard to act in a, in a made-up language, so like you have to really respect someone who can pull it off. Oh yeah, I'm constantly impressed. By the way, like even uh, Emilia Clarke, just the way that they can mm-hmm. kind of flows off their tongue. Yeah, it's really impressive. You know what else, though? Just the setting. I can't remember. Is this Morocco? I think they might oh, be. In- so I don't know, but it's beautiful. Isn't it gorgeous? Oh. Oh, it was, you know, I remember I don't think the they time were in Malta. I think this is Morocco. This is the- is no, it, no, I think Malta's season one, and then I yeah, think they I think this is Morocco. to Morocco. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I remember at the time just going, wow, this is so amazing. And, you know, it's it's amazing to think how much farther we've come just in production value since then. Yeah. But it still holds up beautifully. These were some really impressive scenes to well, me. Well, speaking of, when we flick to the next scene, so it's post-meeting, we've got um, a scene of Danny and Jura, and they're walking along the water. Everyone's walking along the water in this in this episode. Um, yeah, it's really, really gorgeous. Um, they're discussing whether or not to buy the Unsullied, um, and unbeknownst to them, <laughs> they're being followed by a mysterious hooded man. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, there's a sweet little girl, um, and she throws a ball to towards Danny, and Danny smiles and picks it up. And at the same time, the hooded man lunges towards Danny with a knife. Uh, Of course, it turns out that the little girl is not so sweet. She is, in fact, one of the Carthane warlocks, or a warlock child, I guess. Um, And the ball that she threw at Danny opens to reveal a manticore, which is a creature whose sting means instant death. Uh, The mysterious hooded man easily dispatches the manticore, saving Danny's life. And it turns out that he is Sir Barristan Selmy, former Kingsguard to Robert Baratheon, and before him to Danny's father. 
Barristan drops to one knee, pledges Danny his loyalty, and offers her his service. And that is the end of that scene. So I, you know, I, I, I think in retrospect, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with this change. The way that they introduced Bar, or should say, reintroduced Barristan or introduced him into Danny's storyline. Um, you know, they dropped the entire thing of of Barristan going Austin kind of Whitebeard and the Arson Whitebeard thing, where <laughs> mm-hmm. he was, you know, basically spying on Danny, trying to to get a feel for what kind of person she was before he committed. He just appears to just kind of jump in with both feet here, but. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm fine with it in retrospect. I think they really gave him a pretty um, heroic opening here with her. You know, he saves her life. He's he's spotting yeah. a threat. I think so too. And I feel like they really couldn't have. I mean, they could have a guess, but if they had gone with the whole Austin Whitebeard thing, it would have been kind of difficult to conceal his identity to viewers. Like, it's not mm-hmm. something that would play so well, I think, on a visual medium. Yeah. Uh, so I'm totally fine with them skipping that. I mean, they need to streamline these stories. And oh, yeah. I don't think oh, that yeah. that particular story, whilst it was interesting to read, I don't think it added a huge amount to the actual narrative. So I think yeah. it's great. And I think you're right. I think it was a really great intro. Um, it does give the scene itself, the the the, the scene as a standalone, it, it does give it kind of a, a, a deus ex machina type of feel. A little bit, um, Which yeah. I don't love, but, yeah. you know, you, you understand it as an adaptation. I don't know. It, I don't know. You, did you guys watch this before you read the books? What I was your did. initial read? Do you remember? <sighs> I, at this point, was caught up. I think I marathoned after season two. I just... If I hadn't finished, I think I was caught up. Or I hadn't the read point the book where I knew he was Barristan. Yeah, I hadn't and read I was, the books. I was totally fine with it. Yeah, I was okay with it. I mean, I don't recall having any any huge issues with it. I mean, I think you're right. It was, uh, you know, it was quite coincidental that he happened to be there right at that time just to to save Danny. But yeah, I don't remember. Reminds me of some other coincidences that we right later. Right. <laughs> yeah, which seems to be a continuing trend with this show. But yeah, at that time I don't recall having any any huge issues with it. I think it was great actually. I actually remember enjoying Danny's stuff at this stage. I don't remember having a big issue with her at all. Last few <sighs> anyway. Alright, so that pretty much brings us to the end of the episode. Um, we do have um, a couple of questions if you guys are, are keen to answer a couple. Depends okay. on what the questions are. I think you know. <laughs> um, so the first one is actually a question that was sent to Chicky on Tumblr, but we we liked her so much oh, we thought yeah. we could discuss it. On... <laughs> Did you actually yeah. forget that, Chicky? <laughs> I thought you were just like playing coy. No, I really didn't remember. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, so we we liked it so much we thought we could discuss it on the podcast. Um, and the question is, do you think Jamie really deserves Brienne and vice versa? What do I you think guys? This think? is on my bingo card. <laughs> Doesn't deserve her. She should be with Hyle. <laughs> this is a classic. This what is Jimbo's good... talking about yeah. your bingo card, which is so funny. Well, that's it. I think um, this is collection. such. I was just going to say, I think this is such a great question because when you've been in fandom for any length of time, you will undoubtedly see people vehemently arguing that Brienne is too good for Jamie, um, and they'll often try and match Brienne up with someone else, like Hyle Hunt, for example. Um, and it's just, it's really confusing to me, because I think that we can all agree that Brienne wants Jamie, right? Like, she wants him with the fire of a thousand suns. Um, I mean, you know, when they're separated, she thinks about him constantly. It's often in a, 
a sexual or a very romantic kind of context. You know, you, Jamie's replacing Renly in her dreams and when she's having the fevered dreams, he's replacing Red Ronnet, who was, you know, the boy she was supposed to marry. Um, and another neat little thing is she also tends to associate Jamie with her home. We see that when she's sick and having her fevered dreams, you know. She, he's her safety. He's her rock. And she loves him and she wants him sexually. So... Uh, to me, if you like a character, surely you want what's best for them, which is what they want, you know? You'd want them to be with the person they want to be with. So that's what I think Brienne deserves, you know? I mean, she spent her entire life feeling shunned and rejected. I think she deserves to get what she wants for once. Yeah, And it's not like Jamie doesn't care for her in return. That's the thing. Well, no, it's that's like, it. It's like with Renly, you know, he was just, you know, civil to her, friends with her. But Jamie, like, genuinely cares about her. So I don't see why it's so wrong to want, have, you know, I don't think Jamie doesn't deserve Brienne. Well, you know Especially was... since he's on, like, a character growth, too. Like, he's not going downhill. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, to kind of play off of what you're saying, Jin, I mean, like, there's kind of this this weird aspect to it where it's like is this super mario brothers it's like do you have to like win the game to like earn the girl or something i mean yeah. like, there's this really strange patriarchal <laughs> overtone to this idea of being worthy of yes. someone i mean that's just not how this isn't how relationships actually work and it really isn't how sexual relationships or even just romantic relationships tend to work i mean you know it's like it has very little to do with what we quote unquote deserve it's it's more about just the connection between two people yeah it should like, be about what we want and who we fall in love with you know you yeah. don't you don't choose to fall in love with someone on the basis of how deserving they are or of how good they are and you know yes i've seen <laughs> A lot of people arguing that Jamie doesn't deserve Brienne because, you know, as we were talking about before, he's this morally grey kind of character. He's he's pushed a kid out a window. He threatens to throw babies out of trebuchets. He, he kills people. And, yes, you know, he's kind of an asshole a lot of the time. But, you know, if we're playing this game, Jamie also has some really admirable qualities um, that I think Brienne respects. I mean, this is why she's into him, you know. He's... He, he may be morally great, but he has this code of honour um, that sees him playing the hero a lot of the time, you know, saving people from rape and from bears and and seeing him also be quite benevolent in peace talks. I mean, we see that a lot in Feast where he's he's really doing an admirable job of, of making peace in the Riverlands and... I don't know, while, while Jamie does love fighting, he, we know from the books that he really hates violence simply for the sake of violence he hates senseless violence and he only wants to fight fair um i i guess when talking about jamie and what he deserves i think what's most important is jamie doesn't really love many people but when he does love someone he loves them so completely and so unconditionally that he'll die to protect them and to me that is something that brienne deserves and I think that's something yeah, that Yeah, makes... he wouldn't treat her badly. Well, that, I mean... He wouldn't treat her horribly, so I don't... Well, I mean... Yeah, he loves her. He... The thing is... Yeah, like, like I was saying, I don't even think we, you need to validate the relationship by saying that, like, one of them is even, like, worthy of the other. Yeah. It's like what you guys were saying already, that, you know, it's just about them connecting and wanting to be together. So, 
all of these are just used as arguments to sort of be like, oh, she's better off alone, or you know, well, that's she's better. Yeah. Well, that's like, that that actually, and Kyle is less than asshole. She's better off with him. Well, you know what's know. interesting is I actually had this discourse with someone on Reddit. <laughs> you, I don't know when it was, like a week or two ago. Um, who was basically saying, I don't understand why feminists want Brienne with Jamie because, um, you know, being a feminist, surely it's it's better for Brienne to, to be alone than to rely on, <laughs> hang on, rely on a guy to validate her. <laughs> I was just like, um, oh my God. you know, from a feminist perspective, at least from my point of view, it should be about the woman's choice. And if Brienne wants Jamie, then the more feminist <laughs> thing to do is to let Brienne have Jamie, not to say to, to tell Brienne what she deserves or what's best for her. I agree. Concern and honestly, problems. what other guy is there in Westeros for Brienne that would treat her with an ounce of respect? Kyle Hunt. Like, Jamie respects her and cares for her. That's all you really need. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it was an interesting question. I thought that was a good Take one. Take your concern calling somewhere else, Anon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's um, best for her? Yeah, <laughs> just, just, they just want what's best for her from a feminist perspective. <laughs> All right, um, I just have another quick question. Uh, this one came from uh, Billy via email, and Billy actually sent her a longer email um, as well. So I'll get Comma to read uh, the rest of the email when we do the thank yous. But uh, her question is: um, so she says, I have a theory I want you to discuss. In the show, they have made some necessary changes to Brienne's character because she's a grown woman and not a girl in her late teens. They made her less naive and more confident, things that come with age. What they have not addressed is the fact that an older Brienne is likely to have some romantic history. They have left the door open for this when she and Jamie have that one or two have tried conversation. At first I thought she meant the bet, but in the show they seem to replace that plotline with the ball when Renly danced with her kind of putting the two together. Also, I don't believe that no one up until Jamie has found her attractive. Gwendolyn Christie is gorgeous, and as much as they try to downplay her look, she is still one foxy lady. My last point is that Brienne in the show feels a little more bitter to me, more like a woman who has had her heart broken than someone who has never been romantically loved. I doubt this show would ever cast someone or anything like that, but I would like her and Jamie to have some kind of conversation about it. I would love that bit of extra backstory, and jealous Jamie would be a plus. So I, I don't see that on the show. I don't see her no. as someone who. I mean, I think especially coming off of season five with what was it, episode three, where they she had the Renly conversation yes, with yeah. God. I mean, it seemed pretty clear to me that her romantic life was a one hundred percent bust from that. I don't know about you guys, but well, and she's not. I mean, it's not like she's in the modern era where, you know, dating would be encouraged or allowed. I uh, mean, yeah. e- even in a medieval world, I mean, she's she may not want to be called a lady, but a lady she is. And it's not like random guy. I mean, well, yeah, the guys who would be around, who would be willing. Uh, she's just not going to have a fuck buddy in, in the West yeah, that no. she lives in. That's just, I mean, I get, I feel like maybe this question is coming from like a, a fan fiction perspective where they're thinking of like modern AUs and like, that's a whole other story. I agree with yeah. Tom, 
but like yeah in universe i don't i just don't see it on the show i mean like i'm, I'm yeah. it's not because I'm, I'm not willing to see what's there but i think that they have presented her as being as much a romantic failure on the show as she yeah and i mean i think you know despite the fact that gwendolyn christie is a lovely looking lady i don't think that's actually meant to translate to Brynn's character on screen like i think she's yeah. still supposed to be undeniably ugly um they're trying they're trying yeah. they're trying they, they're trying. they can't they're trying, <laughs> they're trying. Well, um i think billy's making two very good points that is, is part of the problem with translating translating this show to to television one is that the character is aged this is not an 18 year old girl i mean i love gwendolyn christie no. as as much as the rest of you but that woman is not 18 no yeah does not look it does not even look 25 um, and modern viewers, and we've seen that with the other characters, we've seen that with Arya and Sansa, modern ordinary viewer looks at that person and makes a judgment call based on their own perspective. So that's number one. And number two, the thing that happens is she's right. Gwendolyn Christie is is drop dead gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And it's it was I mean, I have never had a problem with the casting because I honestly don't know how many other women are out there that would fit that role. Um but again, it, asking people to check their, you know, disbelief at the door, you can only do that so long. So I do see where she's coming from. Um, it, I just feel like, you know, like Chicky said, that they made it clear that she was just, you know, Renly. Like, she was all about Renly. I think it was at the ball when, um, when she was telling a story about you know, her experience at the ball, that was when she just de- decided to devote herself to Renly, and mm-hmm. she was Renly's until he died. And it was kind of similar yeah. to Jamie's, um, you know, de- dedicating himself to Cersei as a teen, and then he's one person. Yeah. Bran, same thing with Renly. She basically married herself to Renly. But when do you, when right. do we, when do we, we get that hint of it in season two, that sort of business, and to be honest, she's not we haven't really had a lot with of Brienne then and we get it in season no. 5 with the exposition. Yeah, but so I can see how and I don't know, you know, how dedicated a viewer Billy is, but I can see how a lot of people would be wondering about this is what I'm saying. Yeah, but you know the other thing is Genmo hits on something really important and and this is I think why it's like hard for me to even entertain this idea is number 1 Brienne being just a complete failure on the front of finding a man is so integral to her character in the mm-hmm. books that it's hard to even entertain anything else but yeah there is the fact that another parallel that they do share on the show as well in, as in the books that Jen points out is that they're both you know you know Jamie's a one woman man and Brienne is a one man woman and they're completely dedicated to one person it doesn't matter how hopeless it right. is for Brienne with Renly she's gonna be right there yeah. with him anyway and that is so integral to her character and it has been on the show as well it's one of the few things that they've really clung to so I, yeah I just don't I don't see what I don't see what Bill is seeing sorry I don't, I don't see I don't see anything else coming from Brienne that indicates any sort of romantic anything I mean but else. could you see it from a show watcher who hasn't read the books Ah, I mean, because Brian's you know, characterization has been, <laughs> you know, it's been a little iffy. Um, she's not somebody who cries after. This is not the one who's upset after she has to kill someone. This is the stone cold assassin killer we've got now. You yeah, know, I mean, I'm talking about her viewer, interactions with see. people. I mean, do you see her interacting with people as though she is someone who's comfortable with the opposite sex? I just don't really see that. I don't know about you guys. I don't think we've had a ton of it to know. 
I mean, I know it because I've read the books and I'm obsessive, but I don't know, your average viewer, I think a lot of this stuff washes over them. I think there are a lot of people who have social anxiety who are very abrasive and they still have relationships. So I don't know whether or not you can sort of rely on that kind of interaction to determine whether or not someone's had previous romantic relationships. So, I mean, yeah. what, basically what I'm saying is I can see it from a show-only show watcher point of view, but, yeah, for people who have read the books, it's just beyond belief that, yeah, that Brienne would have engaged in, I guess, more of a – or have more of a romantic past. It's a door that's closed. It's just a door that's closed for her. That's just only of, Jamie can open that is. door. <laughs> and I'm not saying only Jamie can open the door. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, let me have the <laughs> <laughs> Brienne's relationship, though, is just how Brienne has given up all hope of ever finding a romantic connection with someone because no one has ever accepted her for who she is. I right. mean, you know, she doesn't think it's even possible for her. You can tell. Well, that's what that's makes why she was so dedicated to Renly. Right. I think that's what makes Jamie so important because we actually do see little instances of Brienne thinking that maybe this is a possibility, like in the books in Feast, where she's considering what she might have to do to get Jamie to comfort her, you know, that's something that to me would indicate that she thinks that there might just be a little bit of a chance for them, which is something that yeah. she probably has never really considered before, even with Renly. It's part of the like, beauty of it, yeah. is that you can see that this is a first for her. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, like Renly was a safe kind of crush. Or right, he was, was a, happen. Yeah, he was like a superficial kind of, as you say, a, a safe you know, this... Uh... He was rejected with Renly. She was already rejected with Renly. Right. She, she couldn't be rejected again. Well, yeah. And he was a teenage girl's first... Cry. I mean, it's a whole different thing. I mean, now she's an adult woman. I mean, when you're presumably however old she is when she starts crushing on Renly, I mean, I can see how that could happen. Yeah. You know, Jamie is, is a mature love. Well, well, Jamie's a real love because there's actually the possibility of those feelings being reciprocated. Yeah. I think Brienne knew on some right. level that those feelings with Renly could never be reciprocated. And so as right. Fleet was saying, it's a safe kind of superficial love. All right. I think have – we, have we done that? Have we addressed that question? I think How we've done How excited well. were we to get some Jamie Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was so excited. <laughs> Guys, we love these questions and we particularly love Jamie and Brienne questions, so please, if you have any, please send them to us. Please, we are clearly so desperate, you guys. Like, I mean, it's, you know, in a, in a season where we had, we just come off a season where there was basically no Jamie and Brienne, we really, really needed this. So thank you so much for sending those in. Um, Coma, you've got the thank yous. I do, and actually it seems like our viewers are feeling the same um, frustration. Um, these are uh, thank yous from last our last podcast. Uh, uh, poor Ian wasn't able to complete them. Um, <laughs> live long. Um, already, your podcasts make me more happy than this shit show does at the moment. Well, it's shitty now ever since Jay and uh, Jamie and Brienne were separated, let's be honest. I could bear through it even if I still had them on my screen, or if Jamie and Brienne grew as individuals like they were supposed to. God, that's in caps. Um, <laughs> I'm a book reader, still reading, as well as show watcher, and the only characters George should be gone. Killing off his D and D for fucking up his story. Oh no! I have no. I've got no clue what's coming next season, and I don't mean that in a good way. <laughs> okay. Um, you gotta bet. We, sometimes we understand. Yeah, I, I totally 
Because, you know, I never do that at all, no. Uh, (laughs) And then uh, our other comment was from, I'm going to, I hope I don't screw this up, Markhands. Um, Hi, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I only started to get into Game of Thrones recently. And tuning into you guys helped me uh, catch up with a bunch of stuff. I'm kind of disappointed with how they handled Jamie's character this season, especially with his Dorn arc in general. Well, there's actually a question here. Uh, my question, why do you guys think they made Jamie still very much obsessed with Cersei instead of trying to move away from her? I feel like his character barely progressed. Hoping for a Jamie and Brienne reunion next season. And I think I speak for all of us when I say we are too. We are too. Sure. <laughs> we really are. Clearly, like dying <laughs> we're dying. I think we're all going to die when it happens. <laughs> Probably. Like, Finally. Or be dead when it happens. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we may be 80 years old. It's been 84 oh years. <laughs> is that everything, Comma? That is. Thank you for doing those. Uh, so if you would like to send us a review, a message, or even a question, we do love them. Please send them. Uh, you can email us at and at gmail.com. We also exist in the Tumblrverse at closethedoorandcomehere.tumblr.com. And you can also tweet us at doorpodcast. If you really like us, you can rate and review us on iTunes. And if you really, really like us, you can sponsor us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash close the door. Uh, I think that's it. Um, I'd just like to thank this week's panel, especially our fantastic guests, Jinmo and Fleet. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. So I guess that's all for this episode. Bye, everyone. Hooray for season Bye. three. Hooray. Bye. 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 Bye, everybody. Bye.